Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock. And me, Gronya McMahon. Each episode delves into an area of law or tax where we hope to enlighten you on a specific area and discuss topical issues of law, as well as meet interesting people from the world of law and tax. Today's guest is Sonia Dixon, a practising barrister who qualified in 2005. She has a general civil practice specialising in family law and the area of pension adjustment orders. She co-wrote the book Pensions and Pension Adjustment Orders, a handbook for the family law practitioner published by Bloomsbury. In addition to family law, she represents rape victims in criminal trials. Today, we're sitting down with Sonia to chat about pensions, an area which some practitioners tend to shy away from. But we hope in this podcast to break down the technical aspects of pensions and simplify them. Sonia, thanks for joining us today. We are really excited to talk about pensions. Uh, Can we start with asking you why so many practitioners are slightly scared of them? Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me here today. I think there is um, there's a view that pensions are extremely complicated and extremely technical and they can be. But I think once you get the basics in line and get a few rules into your head, the rest tends to fall into place. I think um, with pensions as well, sometimes you have to be a little bit innovative and um, sometimes there there is actually no one answer to the question. And it's a good idea to bounce ideas around with with colleagues and pension experts. But I do find if you can get five or six rules into your head with pensions, a lot then tends to fall into place. And they're not as complicated as everybody seems to think that they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting now, I believe, am I right to say that we're seeing that pensions are now the biggest assets when it comes to family law cases? I think in the the big crash in 2008, that was more the case when the family home went into negative equity. I think property prices are are, are still uh, pretty high at the moment. I think they're 20% off their peak in 2007. So the family home is still usually the biggest asset. Uh, But pensions can be extremely valuable. And if if they're not the biggest asset, they they can be a close second in uh, judicial separation and divorce proceedings. That's really interesting. And so how do you calculate the pension assets in a case prior to the trial then? If you need to calculate um, a defined benefit scheme, and these are the more valuable ones, so the older style scheme where you are promised a certain percentage or fraction of your salary, often it's two thirds, for example, in the public sector scheme. And then you will have additional uh, benefits for spouses and for children sometimes. And these are these are the good old fashioned schemes. These can be really valuable, but you would need an actuary to, to, to get a valuation with the defined contribution models. They can be much easier to value, particularly if you're just going to take it from the point um, of time in the present, because it's a pension pot and there's a certain value ascribed to it at this point in time. So the defined contribution, quite easy, the defined benefit quite difficult to um, value accurately and and, and you will need um, an actuary. If we're talking about them being more and more important, like you said, maybe not the most important asset, but if they are so important, is that 
representing that we're maybe investing more in pensions now or are we just more aware of them? I think there is slightly more um, awareness around them at the moment in the media seem to be focusing in on them a lot. Um, There was a lot of noise about the retirement age being um, increased again. That's been postponed for the moment. So there is a lot in the media about pensions. I don't know if that is actually having a huge effect in practice. I think there's a real reluctance there because people, I suppose, have financial constraints on them um, in, in their lives at the moment. They may have children and mortgages and all the rest of it. And it, it, I suppose there's a perception of, well, I'll put that off on the long finger for the future. Maybe slightly more awareness and investing, but not a huge amount, I wouldn't think. People, as well as practitioners, are a little bit scared off by pensions. I think people find them a little bit confusing. And so, like, maybe just for this podcast, we can go back to some of the basics. Uh, In Ireland, I know we have three types of pensions, uh, state pension, occupational pensions, which may be public or private sector, and personal pension policies. And then there are others which are kind of hybrids of these. Could you give us a quick run through of the differences between the various pensions? So you have pension models and the the two basic models are the defined benefit model and the defined contribution model, um, both of which I mentioned already. And as I said, the defined benefit model is is the good one, the valuable one, the one where you're promised a certain um, fraction of your salary. They are dying out because they simply can't be funded anymore. They can't be be funded by employers and they have decreased massively in the last, I would say, 15 years or so. The defined contribution model is a pot of money and whatever is in that pot of money at the end of the day is, is there for the person who's retiring and it takes the responsibility away from the employer in that sense. So with the defined benefit model, I should have said also, not only are you promised a fraction of your salary, you, you also have um, ad- additional benefits, perhaps for spouses or for children. That has to be paid out. But with the defined contribution model, it's a pot of money. You then go off and decide what you want to do, whether you want to buy an annuity, if you want to put it into another fund, possibly an approved retirement fund. And it shifts the responsibility back onto to the employee or the pensioner. So as I said, the defined benefit models are, are really dying out now and employers are trying to move on to the defined contribution schemes because the defined benefit are just too hard to fund. So th- that brings me neatly on to um, the hybrid that's come about as well. So obviously people are reluctant to move to a model that's going to be less beneficial to them. And there are certain incentives, perhaps things called um, enhanced transfer values, things like that, that are used to persuade um, scheme members to change to the defined contribution model. And another approach that has been taken is coming up with a hybrid of the two models so that you may it may be more or less defined benefit, but it's just defined contribution in that perhaps an average of your salary is taken to come up with a fraction at the end for for what you're going to be paid into retirement. Or you could take the last three years instead of just the last year because ordinarily the last year will be the highest amount of salary that you've been paid. And obviously it's going to 
make sure that the employer has to pay the most out then that it's one solution that has has been um put into place for the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution to have a hybrid so they're the models as such then you have occupational pension schemes they're company pension schemes that are put in place by your employer and they obviously can be db or dc and then you also have personal pension policies and you may have heard these sort these acronyms such as RAC PRSA BOB the RAC um, is the retirement annuity contract and you don't see that as much now because the PRSA has taken over and um, that's the personal retirement savings account and that's as i said a pension pot there it's a defined contribution model and yourself um, and sometimes your employer can contribute to it. There are limitations with regard to how much you can put in, depending on your age. And there's an overall limitation as well, because obviously your contributions are tax-free and there's a, there's a certain amount that you can put in. And then you take those funds at the end um, of your employment when you're retiring and you make decisions what you want to do then. Do you want to go and buy yourself an annuity where something is going to be paid to every week or every month or do you want to put it into another fund and you you can access it more readily yourself the bob the buyout bond is another product that that people may have heard of that is one that just takes transfers from other schemes you can't make any contributions to the buyout bond and finally i'll just say a word about small self-administered schemes these tend to be schemes that are set up by self-employed people and um, they are subject to all sorts of new rules, which I, I think we're going to touch on later on. But it's another type of scheme where you may have more control over the pension assets and the investment. And it's something that's, that self-employed people can look to when, when providing for retirement. So that's um, a brief outline of, of the pensions and the models. Sonia, you mentioned at the start that there are five or six things that you should look out for when it comes to pensions. Would you mind going through those? Yeah, I I have what I um, like to refer to as my golden rules when it comes to pension adjustment orders. And I feel that if people can keep these rules in their head, everything will flow from that. And once you get your head around these things and, and keep them in there, everything else will slot into place much easier, much more easily. And The first one to remember is the pension belongs to the trustee. And that is the whole purpose of pension adjustment orders. It's not like the other assets in family law proceedings, like the family home or whatever else you have that is actually in the name of one or both of the parties. The pension belongs to the trustee and the pension adjustment order is an order directing the trustee to pay out a certain amount at a certain specified date. Once you can remember that and you remember the whole purpose of it, I think it's it's really helpful. And then the second thing to remember is that a pension adjustment order comes in and overrides the scheme rules. So all schemes will have their own set of rules and they will you know, vary from scheme to scheme. And with, without a pension adjustment order, the trustees are obliged to follow the scheme rules. Then a pension adjustment order comes in for a certain percentage over a certain period. And it says you must disregard the scheme rules insofar as this pension adjustment order says, whether it's for 50%, whether it's for 75%, 20%. 
So it's overriding the scheme rules and the trustees have to not apply the scheme rules for the part that is covered by the pension adjustment order. And then the balance will go back to the scheme rules. So if you can keep that part in your head as well, I think it's really useful if you can understand the purpose behind the order and, and what, what everybody's trying to do. The third thing to remember is that when you, I mentioned percentages there and, and periods when you, when you have a pension adjustment order and they're going to go in and override the scheme rules for that. The period for the pension adjustment order cannot go beyond the date of the decree. So whatever the period is, whether it's from the date of the marriage or the date the parties cohabited or the date the person joined the scheme, it, it'll be decided by the court or, or the parties when they're negotiating. That, that's all up, up for grabs for the start date. The finish date cannot be later than the date of the decree. So it's not possible to get an order over benefits that the member hasn't, hasn't built up yet. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing, and this I find this one really useful and it's so simple, contingent benefits are death in service benefits. Everything else is a retirement benefit. And if you can keep that in your head, it, it solves so many problems. There's often a big question mark over the death in retirement or what's referred to as the spouse's pension. And people confuse that and, and, and think it's a, it's a contingent benefit. It's not a contingent benefit. A contingent benefit is only if the person, God forbid, drops dead while still in their employment, death in service only. So once you have that straight, everything else is a retirement benefit. Can you expand on what contingent benefits are? I think sometimes there's confusion around these. If you could expand on those before you go to numbers five and six. A contingent benefit is going to be an insurance payout and Often it's something like, again, it'll depend on the, on the scheme rules, it'll be something like four times salary. And it's a, it's a big payout if somebody, as I said, God forbid, drops dead in service. Sometimes it's paid to the estate under the scheme rules of the member. Sometimes there is a letter of wishes that the member has written and, and the trustees will try and follow that letter of wishes. And um, Sometimes it'll go to a spouse. So it, it, it'll depend on the scheme rules, but it's usually a large payout of money. Occasionally, there can be a pension on top of that um, and, and monthly sum coming in. And that's something that you might find more in the public sector scheme. But by and large, it's going to be a large sum of money that's paid out should the person die in service. And is it true that you can assign the contingent benefit, for example, in family law proceedings, like assigning the death and service to the spouse or children? Yes, it would be to the former spouse or if it if it was for the children, it would be to the former spouse, possibly for the benefit of the children. It would need to be to somebody else for the benefit of the children or both. I mean, you can have 50 percent, say, to the, the spouse and 25 percent to each child if there are two children. I think lots of practitioners will find that really useful. Could you now explain numbers five and six? Court will, in my experience, normally now take the view, and the judge may even say it on the day, I'm taking the view that the contingent benefit order is made now today on the date of the decree. When you come back with the formal order that we're going to send off to the trustees, that's really only tying up loose ends and rubber stamping everything. I'm taking the view that the that the contingent benefit order is made today, the date of the decree. And that's very useful then because it gets over any difficulty that a contingent benefit order 
can't be paid out. So that's what we're seeing more. But I, it would be great if there was more clarification on that because it's a, it's a very sort of murky um, area at the moment, the contingent benefits and, and the one-year rule. But that's that's I, I do find that courts are trying to accommodate people and, and as I said, taking the view that it was actually made on the date of the decree, even though the formal order hadn't hadn't been drafted up and sent to the trustees. The next rule um, that I like to to talk about is the instances when a contingent benefit order will cease. So a contingent benefit order, as we've just said, is only if somebody drops dead in service. If they leave that service, if they leave that employment, it's gone. It just disappears because it's not, how can they die in service if they're not in that service anymore? They may go off to another uh, scheme and, you know, it, and then there will be another death and service benefit. But th- that's not relevant if the order has already been made on, on foot of, of the divorce. Um, and obviously, if they retire, they're not going to be in service anymore. So the contingent benefit order will just completely disappear if the member is no longer in that particular service. A contingent benefit order will also no longer um, be in effect for a spouse who has remarried. So the order is gone if that spouse remarries. And a contingent benefit order um, will also cease if um, children are no longer dependent. So if it's made for the benefit of a child, it's once that child is no longer dependent within the meaning of the family law acts, which is up to 18 or 23 if they're in full-time education, that contingent benefit order is going to cease also. And what happens, Sonia, when it's not done within the year? Have you seen cases like that? So the legislation states that the contingent benefit order must be applied for within one year of the date of the decree. The preferred view is do that, get your pension adjustment order ruled within the one year to to avoid any difficulties. However, if you do find that you are stuck, you could go into court and make the argument that the contingent benefit order was made on the date of the decree and that you're only coming back to court to have the formal order uh, drawn up and sent to the trustees. And I think my, in my view, most judges are accommodating people in that regard and even might state on the date of the decree, I am taking the view that the contingent benefit order is made today. In other words, you're only coming back with the formalities of draw, having drawn up the order and sending it off to the trustee, but the contingent benefit order is made today. And that's very helpful because, you know, otherwise people might find themselves in, in terrible difficulty. But to be sure... I would say at this point still or urge everybody to get their contingent benefit orders drawn up, ruled and out to the trustee with, within within one year to, to avoid any potential difficulties. And what happens if it doesn't, if it's not done within the year? Have you seen cases like that? Um, there are, I suppose there are a number of things that, the best argument really is you go back into court and argue that it was made on the date of the decree. Um, I haven't heard of that having been refused recently anyway. Um, another very useful tool to go back into court is um, if there if there is difficulty from the trustees in implementing it, there is a section 
Section 1720 in the Family Law Divorce Act 96 and the equivalent section is 1220 in the Family Law Act 1995 for the judicial separation. And it's um, something that you can use to go in and clarify. So if trustees, for example, are being very difficult you could, and saying, well, this wasn't ruled within the year, you could go back into court and get an order under 1720 directing the trustees to implement the order and to clarify perhaps that the order was made on the date of of the decree so that it's a very useful section for going back into court and and clarifying things and getting the court to to make further directions to the trustees i think that's a really handy tip sonia maybe you could talk us through pre-trial in family law proceedings have you any tips when a pension is involved yeah the first thing to do is to serve the notice to the trustees and you must make sure that you have the correct trustees. It's unclear who is to serve, you know, what trustees, maybe liaise with the other side. Usually I think people tend to, tr- to serve their own pension trustees, but make sure uh, with the other side that both sets of trustees have been served. Um, if in doubt, perhaps just serve both trustees yourself. Get as much information as you can in relation to all pension schemes, get the um, scheme rules, get a benefit statement, uh, any any other pension information that you can get will be very useful. And um, when you have done that, you can decide whether you need to have a valuation or not, whether you're going to need a pension expert or an actuary to do that. And um, the way the family law legislation is framed a pension adjustment order in a way is going to be a last resort so the way it's framed it states that the court is going to have regard to all the other assets and all the other orders it can make first before a pension adjustment order but that's not to say that pensions can be ignored in any way they're an asset they're there and if they can be traded off against the pensions you still have to have some idea of of the valuation, but often if the pensions aren't particularly valuable or if they're clearly defined contribution schemes with with a a certain value ascribed to them, you may not have to get, uh, you you most likely won't have to get an actuary or anything like that for for valuing to them. And then um, if you're negotiating, you know, as I said, you can look at the other assets. One thing to be, careful about is tax because pensions are when you go to draw them down they're going to be subject to tax but something like an asset like the family home is completely tax-free so just that that is something to keep in the back of your mind when you're looking at valuations and negotiating yeah i was wondering could you is there anything further you'd like to say about the tax elements when it comes to pensions and family law cases i think that's that's probably all that I can say for now, I mean, the, 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 the way the pension works is that your contributions are tax-free. They're, go, they're going in, you know, it's gross amounts that are going in. So there's going to be tax at the other end for whoever is drawing down the pension. And um, there will, will, of course, be tax-free lump sums that people can avail of, various things like that. But I, in terms of just the, the divorce proceedings, the, the, the main thing that comes to mind is to just be aware that certain assets will attract tax and and certain assets won't. That's great. I was wondering kind of further to that, um, could you maybe speak a little bit about pensions 
outside the EU, such as in the US, um, and, and how that kind of changes things? I think really the rule of thumb um, is quite a simple one here, and it's avoid, avoid, avoid foreign pensions. The court really has no jurisdiction to direct trustees in another country. There is quite a, an innovative argument, I suppose, that pensions could potentially come under the, the EU maintenance regulation. I, I haven't tried that one yet, uh, but and I, I think for everybody's sake involved, it would be easier to, to take note of the asset and trade and you know, trade it off against something else because there's there's just no jurisdiction to bind trustees in another country, um, be it in the EU or or in the US or or anywhere else. As I said, there there is a kind of a, a theoretical argument that you could do something under the EU maintenance um, regulation, but I, I haven't seen that work in in practice. Sonia, would this also apply to pensions in the UK? Are you saying that as a rule of thumb, if pensions are outside of Ireland and the power is limited to pensions in this jurisdiction, that we should really be very aware of those in terms of any split? Well, I mean, you have to obviously take it, take account of the fact that they're there and, you know, this person has a very... Um, you know, lucrative pension in another jurisdiction. So therefore, perhaps this person, the, the other person should get the, the investment property in Ireland or whatever it is. Um, one thing I suppose you can do is, if there is a pension pot and, and in another state and, or in another jurisdiction and somebody has access to it now, I mean, you can come to an agreement that they just take that the funds out of that pension and subject to tax and give them to the other spouse. There's something like that, but you won't be able to get a pension adjustment order as such to bind trustees in another jurisdiction. Can we talk now about judicial separations and divorces? A common thing I think a lot of us come across is if a pension adjustment order has been made in a judicial separation, can you vary a pension adjustment order so that you can open up the pot again in the divorce? Or is the rule of thumb that once a pension adjustment order has been made, it's very hard to vary that? You can't. Um, if you, there, you can have an exclusion clause and they're, they're very common in, um, in pension adjustment orders so people can't go back. But the basic rule is once you go um, for a divorce, everything is opened up again. So you're, you're opening everything up again. But if you have um, pension adjustment to your orders in place and a very detailed settled, settlement agreement, of course, it's very hard to get a court to vary that. You know, you have to go in with a really good reason why you need it varied, why circumstances, circumstances have changed so dramatically that these terms that, you know, both legally represented sides came to over with a lot of hard work and, and valuation and negotiation, why these need to be changed. So it's it's extremely difficult to, to uh, vary terms. It can be done, though, in theory. And if you do want to go back in on a divorce and vary a pension adjustment order, it is possible. When you go back for a divorce, it puts everything back on the table again. You're entitled to go and apply for orders again in, with almost everything. So technically it can be done but I think the likelihood of success is extremely limited. 
So would you advise looking at other assets first as probably it can be difficult to undo pension adjustment orders? Well, the trustees will have to do what the, more or less what the court tells them to do. But as I said already, the, the family law legislation is framed in such a way that a pension adjustment order is is to be the last resort in, in a sense. It says that it will look at the other, other orders such as property adjustment orders, maintenance orders, financial compensation orders, everything else before looking to the pension adjustment orders. Um, so in that sense, yes, but and pensions are tricky. And if somebody if somebody got, you know, an order that that was either made by the court or negotiated with whichever and it's providing for them into retirement, you'd want a very good reason to go and undo that. I mean what would be unless they maybe got a huge inheritance and, and the other person was in great financial difficulty. I mean, it's it's sort of hard to think of circumstances why the pension should be taken away from them again. Do you, do you know what I mean? Um, so, Sonia, could you tell us the key things to look out for in pe- pensions, occupational, defined benefit scheme, public sector, defined contribution? Just could you give us, like, what are the key things to look out for? As I said, when you when you realise that pensions are going to be um, a factor in the case, is to, to get all the information that's available. And that means, you know, um, looking at whether you need evaluation and what benefits are available in a defined benefit scheme. In public sector schemes, often you're going to have two separate schemes. You're going to have your main scheme and you're going to have your children and spouses scheme and the the benefits will be split over those two schemes so that's something to bear in mind you may need to look at um when people have changed employment uh, how many different schemes there are uh, if people have changed employment and transferred benefits in from their former scheme you need to be careful when drafting the pension adjustment order and um i think we're going to talk about that a little bit later on so just be mindful of transfers in from old schemes. Always be very careful that you have identified the correct trustees. There are certain policies known as wrappers where one policy is wrapped inside another for um, tax purposes mainly so that they comply with with the the tax legislation and and get to avail of the, the benefits. So you just need to be very careful that you're identifying the correct trustees Another thing to be careful of is additional voluntary contributions. They may be in a separate scheme. They may not be apparent and they may be there. So when you're drafting the order, first of all, when you're making your inquiries, just find out, are there any additional voluntary contributions in this scheme or elsewhere that are not immediately apparent? And um, be, be precise when drafting your order, whether um, the ABCs are, are included. So that they're just a couple of um, things to look at. And so, Sonia, could you explain the difference between a defined benefit and a defined contribution when it comes to spousal pensions? Because there's a lot of confusion around this area. Yes. So with defined benefit schemes, they're the the more um, old-fashioned and um, more valuable schemes, and they will have spousal benefits already put into place for people. And they, um, for example, a common thing that you'll find is that a spouse on the death of the member in retirement will get 50% of whatever the member was getting. And that, that'll go on for, for as long as they live. And that's the, the spouse's death in retirement. Sometimes um, in the public sector scheme, there may be uh, a lump sum available as well. 
sometimes also in the public sector schemes, there will also be an additional pension for any dependent children. It might be a further 25% of, of, the, of what the, the member was getting. So you have those um, built in and they are they're completely separate from contingent benefits. As I said, death and death and service is contingent. This is something that's happened after retirement. So it's it's nothing to do with the contingent benefits. With the defined contribution schemes, it's a pot of money that you have at the end. And you then decide what you want to do with that pot of money at the end. And you can go off to um, a broker and say, well, this is what I want. I want um, a payout for myself now into retirement, but I also want to put these benefits in place should I die for spouses or dependents. And obviously that will reduce the amount that you is available to you yourself, but you have put provision in place for um, dependents on your death. So basically with the defined contribution, as I had said before, it shifts all the a lot of the responsibility away from the employer. It's up to the member to look, watch over this pot of money, make sure there's enough in it, and then on retirement they make all the choices what what sort of spousal um, benefits they want to put in place. With the, the de- defined benefit schemes, they're already put in place. They're given a fraction of their salary for their own for their own um, pension and then all the spousal benefits are in place so one is obviously much nicer for the employees and one is nicer for the employer thanks a million for explaining that Sonia now what do you do when pension splitting arises what circumstances may cause a transfer amount to be applied so transfers are not really something that you need to get hugely involved in for the purposes of family law proceedings transfers are something that occur after the pension adjustment order is is put in place it's not something that you need to really concern yourself with um during the divorce proceedings and it's really a little bit outside um you know the, the lawyer's remit in in family law proceedings what you can do is obviously send somebody off and should do is send somebody off to get their own pension advice once they've gotten their designated benefit under the pension adjustment order but um in broad terms, it's it's on a statutory footing now in the family law legislation that a, a spouse is entitled to transfer their portion out, um, or they can keep it in the scheme in in the scheme, but it's it's ring fenced for them, or they can transfer it out. There are a couple of situations where this will be done automatically for them. Uh, trustees can do it in a defined contribution scheme should it should they so wish without the consent of the spouse who's gotten the designated benefit or in another situation they will need their consent in circumstances where the member has ceased to be a member of the scheme so there are a couple of instances where the where the trustees may initiate this but a lot of the time it's it's up to the person who got the benefit under the pension adjustment order to decide what they want to do and it would really be best to send them off to get their own advice with somebody who's qualified to do that. The general rule of thumb is if you get a designated benefit in a defined benefit scheme, leave it in there because you're going to benefit from the salary increases of the member and it's just not worth transferring out. With defined contribution, you, you might as well transfer out and establish your own 
benefit. You're not tied in then with, you know, your former spouse anymore and their investment decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So broad rule of thumb, if it's under a DB scheme, leave your interest in there. If it's under a DC scheme, you might as well transfer out. But that's really broad brush strokes. And as I said, I would advise clients to go off and get their own pension advice on that. I think you've really simplified things there. What does pension equalisation involve, for example, where the parties have a number of different pensions? So pension equalisation would be a process whereby an actuary looks at all the pensions. And if you know one person has a far more valuable pension or a few more valuable pensions, what payments would need to be put in place in order to, to, to level the playing field? So what sort of pension adjustment orders would need to be put in place? Um, so that everybody gets more or less, you know, the same at retirement. But it can also be used um, to to trade off for other assets. So, for example, um, if you have a capital value with a pension of a certain amount, and you know, you may get get the pension equalisation that will, or a report to that effect that will say, well, we would need to get a pension adjustment order for forty percent of your husband's pension or he can give you the entirety of the family home that will level the playing field so you can do it you can do it that way it's a way of looking at the pensions and and leveling the playing field between the two people if one is far in excess in terms of drafting an, a pension adjustment order what are your top tips if you're not outsourcing it to a pension actuary the, the biggest mistake and i still see it frequently enough is people putting a monetary value into a pension adjustment order. You could never, ever put, you know, a specific amount into a pension adjustment order. It just will not work. So, for example, you can't say, you know, Mrs. X is to get 20000 out of the, the lump sum on retirement. It just, it, it, it's a disaster. So never put any monetary value into a pension adjustment order is the number one um, rule. The other thing... Um, that I've already touched on is that you will cannot go beyond the date of the decree for the relevant period. The start date for the relevant period um, can be negotiable. It can be the date of the marriage, the date the member joined the scheme. It can never go beyond the date of the order because it's not possible to get an order over benefits that have not accrued to the member first. I would just say to be as clear as possible with retirement benefits, you really have three things that you're looking at. You have, you know, the, the periodic pension that's paid out, the sum every month. You have your um, lump sum, and um, often in a in a defined benefit scheme, in a defined benefit scheme, you will probably have the spouse's pension. So if you're excluding any of them, if you're saying, well, it's you know only the 100% of the spouse's pension. Be clear on that. Or if you're saying it's um, 100% of the lump sum, but not the periodic pension, be really clear on that. Also, um, you may need identifiers for the party. You know, if somebody has a very common name like John Murphy and it's a huge scheme, you might want to put in a PPS number or something like that or a member number just to, to be very clear who is the, the scheme member. Identifying the trustees, the correct trustees is imperative as well. You will most likely want to put in an exclusion order as well as if we've we've talked about and they're available under section 1726 in the divorce legislation and 1226 in the family law act 95 which um, deals with the ancillary reliefs for J- js 
So you'll want to have that in there as well. It's a good idea to put in something about costs, you know, what's going to, who's going to cover the costs and um, just generally be, be as clear as you can with, with the order. That's great. It, in some ways, this is kind of the other side of the same coin, but maybe there are some further like common mistakes by practitioners when dealing with pensions that you'd like like to highlight. Like I said, I, I'm aware that it's very much, you know, avoid doing some of the things that you highlighted against in the last question. But are there any further kind of common mistakes maybe down to the, the, the wrong wording of the order? The, the monetary value, I just, I think is, is the worst thing. It's, it's just yeah. so unworkable. But the thing is that, uh, you know, the trustees will probably come back and say to you when you go to get it approved, this is completely unworkable. I, I, I know that people sometimes, I've heard people say that they just, you know, they're not really sure and they draft their order and they say, kind of say, oh, you know, just get it off to the trustees and they can decide whether it's right or wrong. A trustee will only say whether an order is workable they're not going to look to what you're trying to do what the parties are trying to do so that is really not a good approach it's you know a trustee is only saying well yeah i know i'm I'm able to i'm able to work with this order they're not going to look at, at you know the intentions of the parties or anything like that so again just you have to be precise and and reflect the the intentions of the parties as precisely as you can Sonia, I think we've both learned so much today and I do think it could be worth highlighting that if there is something that you're confused about, you should send the pension to a pension actuary. Mistakes are, it may only come down the line a long time later. I did say that to, you know, um, a pension lawyer before and they said, well, look, you know, many, many mistakes are only come down the line, you know, many years later. But yeah, absolutely. It, it is something that can have um, big ramifications and, and won't come to light till retirement, which could be many years away. I think that's so true. I think it's better to get clarity so that these things don't arise years down the line and there's difficulties then. Now, we must mention your book, Pensions, a Handbook for the Family Law Practitioner. You wrote that with Laura Cahill some time ago. It remains an excellent read and it's a really handy guide to all of the issues that you come across when dealing with pensions. Sonia, could you tell us a little bit about writing the book? Laura and I were speaking with colleagues who um, said to us, there is just no text on pension adjustment orders and you know, it's something you should think about. And Laura, Laura and I agreed. I found it really enjoyable um, just to get stuck into something and to really get to grips with it all. The more you know about a topic, the more you want to know, I think. And it, it, it just spurs you on and on and on. I, I quite liked doing it. Um, I'm not quite sure what Laura would say, but I, I think overall she, she enjoyed the process. Fantastic. And then I think actually we're just going to round up now and we've a, our usual quick fire round. So just sure. like light questions for the end. Uh, to begin with, how have you survived lockdown? I suppose one thing that I just felt I had to get into and I had, I formally hated was walking. I got out walking, I'd say about twice a day. Um, I just used to always hate walking for walking's sake. I would just always take my car to the local shop. Now I have really started to enjoy walking and, you know, if, 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 if I can walk somewhere now, I, I will, um, just to get out in the fresh air and, and the light. And, um, it's, I think the the benefits are 
immeasurable really and that's just that that was really a huge thing for me because there was there was just really nothing much else to do except get out walking I think in the lockdowns top three things you would take to a desert island I suppose I'm gonna have to say my family uh some good books and some nice food and drink that sounds pretty good. I mean, it sounds pretty much like people's lockdowns, except that it's like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm still in lockdown mode. So since you said you'd bring um, some good books, what current book are you reading? I am reading the book I Am Pilgrim, and the author's name just escapes me at the moment, but it's about a terrorist plot um, with to unleash to to unleash a virus on everybody which is kind of it's it's actually not even a recent book it's I think it's almost 10 years old but it's about a terrorist who um is trying to spread smallpox again around the world so it's actually very good and if I remember correctly I think that's quite a, a long book so it, would it be is quite long yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I'm only about, I think it's about 900 pages I'm about halfway through um so then what was the last time you had a good proper belly laugh um I guess it was probably at home with my family it's a lot of nonsense that goes on but it's it can be funny sometimes so uh, I also enjoyed uh, a comedy that was on Netflix there uh it was no sorry it was a Netflix or was it BBC I think it was Netflix called Motherland I found that very funny so those two things Brilliant. And then finally, if you could choose another career, what would it be? I would have to say an estate agent, I think. I always have found property very interesting. I think that's a real Irish thing. I think we're all obsessed with property. But um, <laughs> I, I, I think I would find that kind of interesting. Absolutely. I think that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you, Sonia. That was so informative. I think we both learned so much today. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it as well. Uh, that's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. Thanks to Sonia Dixon for joining us. It has been a fascinating insight into the world of pensions. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.